we're going to look at a story this morning that uh, we're all going to be familiar with. Testing, one, two, one, two. Do I have amplification? No bueno? Dan, that's okay. I'm just going to keep talking, and I entrust myself to you. I was going to say to get me turned on, but that would be weird. But... <laughs> So if you do jumping jacks, I'll know that's my sign to grab a microphone, uh, but I'm just going to let you do your thing in the process. Dan is a mastermind, and uh, he is the solver of all things. So for a few minutes, until I get amplification, I'll just do this. Is that okay? Can you hear me in the back? Thomas, can you hear me okay? Okay, good. So, um, and I'll only do this for a few minutes, and I'll grab a microphone. I haven't exercise my vocal cords like this until since the time I was preaching Pentecostal youth services. So uh, I'm a little bit out of practice. But this is a really powerful story. And those of you who are fans of The Chosen, this is probably one of the episodes that are, are among your very favorites, right? It was, it's so well done. The, the only thing that I have with the way we refer to this story, and oh, I think it's coming on, isn't it? There I am. All right, very good. I'll dial back from Pentecostal already to something, whatever I became afterwards. Um, but this is going to sound really nitpicky. And for those of you who know me, you know I am not uh, obsessive about details. In fact, the closer you are to me, the more infuriating it is to be in relationship with me because of the fact that I'm not that obsessive about details. But there is one little detail in this that really bugs me because we always refer to this story as the woman at the well. And I hope that you will see after the next few minutes, it really, really needs to be entitled Jesus and the woman at the well. And the reason why is because I do understand that when we read scriptures, I think one of the things that we are invited to do by the gift of our imagination is to envision what it would be like to be present there in that scene and to think through what it would be like to be the various characters in the stories. And for me, it's very easy to identify with the character of the woman at the well. I know what it's like to live a both a religious life and a life that others might deem immoral. I know what it's like to be wanting to orient myself toward God and yet be gripped in, and, I, and, and defined by the shame of my past choices and experiences. And so she's certainly a character that's very easy to identify with. But those of us who follow Jesus also need to be watching it for his presence in the story. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, then you are called to be in this world just as he was in this world. One of the great metaphors for the church that we find in the New Testament is the body of Christ. And so the way Jesus carries himself in this scene or in this narrative is the exact same way that every mature follower of Jesus ought to be conducting themselves. And the other statement that's implied is posturing ourselves in any spirit other than the one that Jesus modeled is something that's called sin for us. And we should repent of it and we should ask the Holy Spirit to deliver us from posturing ourselves in any other stance 
other than the one that Jesus models for us in this story. Because it would be hard for us to appreciate, but the truth is, this is an extremely controversial narrative that's taking place here because of the way that Jesus conducts himself. And I'll go ahead and throw this out there, even though it, I should save it to the end so that I don't lose some of you, get lost in thought while you're putting this little piece of tobacco in your theological pipe. But as we've tried to emphasize, we, we, we take very seriously this idea that Jesus came to reveal the Father's heart. Primarily, he came to reveal the Father's heart. I'm not saying that's all he did, but I'm saying that that has not been given its proper place of consideration, in my humble opinion. And remember what Hebrews says, he is the exact expression of his nature. And the reason why I emphasize this, because we are going to see a Jesus who is the exact expression of Yahweh's nature, behaving in a way that we wouldn't think would be appropriate if we just look at the Old Covenant Scriptures alone. Because what emerges there is a partial picture of who Yahweh is. Remember, these revelations crescendo in the incarnation, in the coming of Christ. He is the perfect representation of God's nature. But what he does here is very offensive to the standards of religion that would have been embedded in the minds of the people at the time, which is why, on the one level, we want to see ourselves as a woman at the well, the recipient of God's mercy and patience and grace in the way Jesus handles this dialogue. But at the same time, we want to recognize this is one of those scenes or narratives in which we see following Jesus and following religion often don't look like the same thing at all. And in fact, following religious convictions might even lead me to justify very unchristlike behavior. And so I want to recalibrate around Jesus when I hear a story like this. So as in all the stories, I'm grateful for what the woman at the well represents. She is not the hero of this story. Jesus is the hero of this story. So let's take a look at the opening dialogue of the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. John 4, verse 1. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria, which is interesting because as we probably have all picked up on a sermon or a Sunday school lesson here or there, he could have not traveled through Samaria. He could have taken the long route around Samaria, but he opts not to do that. He travels through Samaria. Verse 5, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him, for Jews... Do not associate with Samaritans. 
That last sentence, we read it as just like a little bit of information in the story. But I want us to do something a little different with the story this morning and spend some time thinking about that last sentence. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So if we're looking through this story, in particular a Jesus lens, to see what we learn about Jesus, I think there are three significant aspects of the character of Christ that come to the surface here that we need to consider because we also need to be open that if we let the Scripture read us, we don't just read the Scripture, we let it read us, maybe the Holy Spirit wants to bring some conviction about some of these characteristics. Maybe He wants to empower us with a larger vision for who we are and who we've become and who we're becoming, and maybe we need to put up, uh, go to our knees and say, Holy Spirit, work this in me. Let this reality of who Jesus is brim up from the inner being of my soul and express itself on my face and through my hands and my feet and my words. Because what we see here, three characteristics we see here in this story about regarding Jesus is his, humili- his humanity, his compassion, and his dismantling of barriers. His humanity, his compassion, and his dismantling of barriers. So, very quickly in his humanity, this I almost didn't put it in here because it's just such a brief phrase, but knowing myself the way I do and knowing some of you the way that I do, I knew we need to pause and hear this. So in his humanity, six verse 6b simply says this, Jesus, worn out from his journey sat down at the well. Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down. Jesus, worn out, sat down. It's easy for us to not have a very healthy and realistic view of how raw and human Jesus actually was. If I'm doing something wrong, you can tell me. Okay, good. Okay. Um, But there's a lesson here in this. Jesus was human. It means that the carcass that carried his spirit was subject to the exact same functional and biological limitations that we all experience. And that there were times when Jesus got tired. And what he didn't do was this. He didn't rebuke a spirit of tiredness and fatigue so he could just keep on going. He didn't chastise himself. You've got work to do, son of God. You don't need to be tired. You can't stop. Chug the devil off your chest and move forward. This is called spiritual bypassing, where we make an excuse for our ill health and we give it a spiritual reason. And this neck of the woods, where I grew up spiritually, it is an epidemic, where we bypass self-care and health by giving some sort of casual or pithy spiritual excuse. But sometimes we get tired. And when we get tired, it's not faith to push through those boundaries and those barriers. It's not faith to condemn or rebuke those limitations. Faith is to say, thank you, God, for this limitation. I hear what you're saying to me through my weary mind, my battered emotions, and my tired body. And I'm going to take a break. 
I believe in prayer. I believe in ministry training. I believe in taking up your cross daily and denying yourself. But you've got to go on a journey where you recognize that denying yourself and practicing self-care are not antagonistic ideas. We can do both. We may have to do some work to understand the nuances of what's being communicated, but this idea that self-care is antithetical to self-denial simply is not true. In fact, I would say the opposite is true. Only those who have the wisdom to practice self-care will have the capacity to proper practice, to properly practice self-denial. And we see that in Jesus. So, yes, I will pray for you, and you should pray for yourself and ask for prayer, but a lot of the times... You just need a nap and a sandwich. <laughs> and those are real kind of casual things, but what I hope that you can see that as we pursue Jesus, a nap and a sandwich can be immensely spiritual practices because you've got to nourish yourself. You've got to take care of yourself. And even Jesus knew when he was worn out, there was a time to sit down. There is a time to say, listen, <clears throat> I am tired and I am hungry and I don't even have the energy to go into town to buy food. Off with you dudes. Go get me some fish. And, and so it's just this really beautiful picture of the limitations of humanity. And maybe limitations aren't even the best word. They're boundaries that are given for our health. So if you are a person, type A, driven, and you're not taking time to properly rest and eat and be quiet, let me invite you to repent of your sin and to recognize the humanity of Jesus and give yourself permission to take a break if you need it. Because here's what's powerful. If Jesus would have ignored the limitations and not taken the break, he would have never had this encounter with this woman who needed him. And she didn't need the Jesus who spoke to crowds. She needed the tired Jesus who was resting and who was willing to allow her to meet his need. His neediness becomes his ministry to the woman at the well. And if he had been too strong and courageous to submit to it, we wouldn't have had this beautiful narrative that we have here. So number one, we see his humanity. Number two, his compassion. Now, I would say that not because of something specific he says, but because of something that she says. She says to him in verse 9, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She's not just seeing one barrier there, even though our word, even though the sentence is Samaritan woman. There are two barriers there. One, that she was a Samaritan. But number two, she was a woman. Because the truth is, a rabbi would neither have spoken to a, a, a Samaritan, but neither would a rabbi take time to speak to a woman. I know that's offensive for us to hear in our modern times, but it's important that we read the Bible as his story and their story so we can really see how powerful and radical this story actually is. He wouldn't have. There were some sects of Pharisees that we see in the history books that were so strict they wouldn't even look at a woman. All in the name of purity. All in the name of their purity. 
And to not look at a woman and speak to a woman out of a commitment to purity says what? She is the source of my impurity. Well, how convenient is that? The number of men that I've heard whine about modesty so they don't have to mature and discipline their thoughts is overwhelming in this part of the country. Thank you for the clap clap from the front row. (laughs) Men, a woman is not responsible for your lust. I don't care how she dresses or doesn't dress. She is not responsible for your lust. You are responsible for your lust and you alone. And it won't work to give excuses about the times we lived in and how immodest it was. You know what? Men, think of yourself higher than that. You are the sons of God. Christ dwells in your soul. The Christ who overcomes sin and bore the sin of the world defines who you are. You are not a victim of perpetual lust. That is a lie that's been perpetrated, not just by the world, but from the church itself. You really can be a righteous man if you will lean into Jesus. Okay, rant is over, but uh, it was important for that. But they wouldn't even look to a woman. They wouldn't speak to a woman in general, for sure. But especially a woman with her reputation. This passage is filled with so many little minute details that are important. Like, he was worn out, so he rested. But there's another one in there that we really don't need, or it doesn't seem that we need for the story. But we're told what time of day it is. What time was it? It's noon. This is the heat of the day. This is not when the women of the village go and draw water. Women of the village draw water either very early in the morning or very later toward the evening. Why do they do this? Because that's when it is cool. That's when they gather. To be coming at noon is to want to be left unseen. It's to show up when no one else will be there so that you don't have to encounter your own sense of self-loathing or the shameful comments that would be coming from the rest of the community that would have been gathered there. It's a very significant detail that she's showing up alone at noon in order to draw water. And yet, and yet, something about Jesus' demeanor gave her the courage to speak to him. It's a question But it still would have been out of place for a woman to even question a rabbi. At best, she could have been shocked, but what she, what the culture would have expected her to do would be to remain silent and to comply with the request for a drink. But instead, she sees an approachability in this rabbi that's not tangible in all the others. And that approachability gives her the space to let her voice be heard. And so she asked the questions, how in the world are you a Jew speaking to me, a Samaritan woman? But then finally, we see his dismantling of barriers. Now, some of these barriers will be easy for us. We have progressed as a species from the days of some of the more extreme 
ethnic and racial prejudices that would have ruled the day. Again, I am not saying that they are eradicated. I am half Caucasian and half a person of color. I'm a Native American. I have experienced the reality of prejudice and racial assumptions, so I am not trying to belittle you if you've had that struggle. But I also know we've come a long way, baby, from the way the world used to work. I have to acknowledge both of those realities in order to be intellectually honest about the condition I find myself in in contemporary America. So some of these will be easy. Others are going to be a challenge because the barriers that are in place don't come from the deception of the devil. They don't come from some weird dictator who has some kind of tyrannical uh, doctrine that he impresses upon his people. They come right out of applying the religion of the time. And we're tempted to give religious conviction and barriers and authority that we don't give other barriers. What is controversial about Jesus is that he even chooses to break through those barriers as well. There is a posture toward the one who's in the wrong on so many levels that Jesus possesses that sometimes is hard to see in Bible Belt Christians of contemporary America. We tend to get pulled into the same spirit of antagonism. And we have to recognize that if we're operating in antagonism, we're in the spirit of antichrist. We are not in the spirit of in Christ. And we have to wrestle with those questions. So we see in him his demanding of barriers. So she simply says in verse 9 once again, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asks him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So what we see here is that Jesus is actually breaking racial, social, moral, and religious boundaries by engaging in conversation with this woman. And as we're going to see as we finish up the rest of the passage, which we're going to take a break from John because of something that's, things that are going on in the church, but in about two weeks when we look at the rest of it, we're going to see not just that he engages her, but he engages her redemptively. This has a redemptive ending to this story. So let's take a moment, because I know that you've probably been in a Sunday school class or in a sermon. I know because I've done it here where I'll just say, some real offhand comment, well, you know, the Jews judged the Samaritans and they didn't get along. But what I've never done is taken time to stop for just a second and listen, I know I'm up against the odds here. There are about 10% of you that are just going to be salivating over what I'm about to do. And the 90% is I'm praying you will have grace. Um, but I've never taken time to go back in the Old Testament and let's walk through why this hatred existed between the Samaritans and the Jews. So let's take just a moment, and we're going to do that. Now, the passage was too long to include in your notes if they were going to be just two pages, and I, and I, and nor the overhead. So you might want to grab your Bibles. Like I see these people on the front row, I'll have them flipped out on their laps, just like the old days. But hey, some of you didn't bring a Bible, but you have your phone. Now, we have special technology that will cause an alarm to go off if you get on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram during church. So you don't want to do that. But go ahead and take your tablet out to open your Bible app, 
and go on over to uh, uh, 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17. I am not going to read the entire chapter. I'm going to read a few verses and summarize, read a few verses and summarize. But here we get a real good perspective of this tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. So essentially, and we'll, we'll, we'll look into it in the scripture, but I'll give you the preview. Essentially what happened is this. If you look at the history of Israel, we know that they split into two kingdoms. There was the southern kingdom and there was the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom was made up of ten tribes, southern kingdom of, of, of two other ones. The northern kingdom in the history of Israel fell first. The southern kingdom eventually fell as well, but the first one to go was the northern kingdom. When the northern kingdom fell, as would have been the custom of all conquerors that time, the majority of the people in the nation were deported out of the land. They were taken out of Israel and they they were uh, deported into the land of their conquerors. However, they couldn't take the entire nation out of the land, so a very small minority was left in the land. At that point, that minority would have just been the same as Israel's in Judah. They would have been the pure race of Israel. But after deporting some of the original peoples of the land, then what the conqueror would do is take other foreigners that had been captured and send them to replace and repopulate the land that had just been captured. When these foreigners then started coming to the land, especially in the eyes of the southern kingdom, the faithful thing would have been to do is keep yourself separate from those foreigners. Continue to marry within yourself and to continue to, pray, to protect the sanctity of the bloodline, which is a really uncomfortable phrase to say in modern America, but that's what it was. Samaritans didn't do that. Uh, or, or the people, sorry, Samaria is a place in that northern kingdom. Those Israelites didn't do that. They began to intermarry with all of those foreign foreigners that came into the land. And when they intermarried, intermarried, they also began to adopt some of the religious practices that the foreigners brought in from their God. You know, again, I told you this is going to be <laughs> 10%. Hang with me. Try to put your energy out among the others in here. But, but, but it, it, really, it really is fascinating because religious conviction was ethnic and geographical back in these days. And so it, you were, your religion was determined by the land of your birth because they believed that there were other gods that had control and ownership and influence over particular plots of land. For Israel, it was Yahweh. But um, for the Philistines, it was, what is it, uh, Dagon, I think was his name? I can't remember. You can Google it. But anyway, each country had their own gods. So if you conquered that land, it, it wasn't enough just to move in. You needed to find out what that god of that land required. So they were more than willing to do some of the practices of Israel because they knew that they needed to keep this God happy, but they were also bringing in the practices of the, of the gods and the religion from which they came. So now you've got this mixture of race and religious practices that's not antithetical to Israel's worship, but it blends in with Israel's worship other practices. So that's kind of the setup. Let's, let's read about how this happened, Second Kings 17. So verse 6. In the ninth year of Hoshiah, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. 
he deported the Israelites to Assyria and settled them in Halal along the harbor, Gozan's River, and in the cities of the Medes. Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, uh, Ava, Hamath, and uh, uh, Sepharvim. And I had to do Google pronunciation guides this morning, but I got there. And settled them in the place of the Israelites in the cities of Samaria. The settlers took position possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. So, so there is this vacuum of people in the land, right? Well, humans also have predators. Anyone guess what kind of predators that you had to contend with back in ancient Israel? It's mentioned a few times, the different predators. Come on, guess. Huh? Yeah, lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. Um, well, in this case, evidently, the, lion are, the lions are getting hungry because there's less, uh, th- there's less of their, um, uh, their food available. So when all of these foreigners come in, lions start eating them. And so, of course, in their minds, this meant, uh, we've got a problem here. This, we haven't figured out Yahweh yet, and he's sending lions to eat us up. We're going to have to figure out a way to appease this God of the land so that these lions won't keep consuming us. It's really interesting. That's what's going on between the verses here. So then the king of Assyria understood that. And so, so then verse 27, the king of Assyria issued a command, send back one of the priests you deported. Because the priests would know how to, uh, to, to please the God of the land, in this case, Yahweh. Send back one of the priests you deported, have him go and live there so he can teach them the requirements of the God of the land. So one of the priests they de- had deported came and lived in Bethel, and he began to teach them how they should fear the Lord. But the people of each nation were still making their own gods in the cities where they lived and putting them in the shrines of the high places and the people of Samaria, that the people of Samaria had made. The men of Babylon made Succoth Benoth. The men of Cuth made Nergal. The men of Hamath made Ashima. The Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. And the Sephirvites burned their children in the fire to Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of the Sephirvim. They feared the Lord, but they also made from their ranks priests for the high places who were working for them at the shrines of the high places. And again, notice how many times the author is trying to be fair and balanced with their posture. Again, in verse 33, they feared the Lord... But they also worshiped their own gods according to the practice of the nations from which they had been deported. And look at verse 34. They are still observing the former practices to this day. And then the summary verse at the end, verse 41, says once again reinforces this idea. They feared the Lord, but also served their idols. Still today, their children and grandchildren continue doing as their ancestors did. So they adopted new sexual ethics that were not in keeping with the sexual ethics of Israel. 
They adopted new practices. They adopted new religions and new gods and new shrines. They were no longer, in terms of the definition of ancient Israel, they were no longer Israelites. They had a shared history, but in their mind, they were something else altogether. And that something else would have been an abomination to those who considered themselves faithful Israelites. Then we know in about 450 B.C., a really intense uh, quarrel took place between the Jews and the Samaritans. And then it becomes even more intense when a renegade renegade Jew named Manasseh marries the daughter of the Samaritan Sanballat. And at that point, he proceeds to found a rival temple at Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim is to replace the temple that they couldn't get to in Jerusalem because Jerusalem was part of the southern kingdom. So they mimic the temple and they create a new holy place that's informed by Israel's history, but it's in this land that now has become compromised sexually and morally and religiously. And he builds, he builds this new sacred temple. Uh, in the right in the center of the Samaritan territory, but then later, if we look at the book of Maccabees, which is a which is a, 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 a think of the, I think it's the pseudepigrapha books. It's the books that were ancient books. They read them. They they followed their history. They followed their wisdom. But when it came time to the canon, they just didn't quite make the cut. But that doesn't mean that these books weren't incredibly influential in the thinking and in the minds of ancient Israel of that day. I think some of you are just now learning about the book of Enoch, which is a fascinating topic because the book of Enoch doesn't make it into our scripture. But you can read the New Testament and it's very clear that the writers are influenced by this book that didn't make it into the Jewish canon. But nonetheless, there are direct quotes in the New Testament that that are pulling from the book of Enoch. Well, the book of Maccabees is also one of these books. And so we know that in 129, John Hyrcanus, a Jewish general and leader, he led an attack against Samaria, and then he sacked and destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim. So the divide between Jews and Samaritans grew deeper and deeper and deeper as these acts of violence and terrorism began to take place from one nation to the next. There's another book uh, called Ecclesiasticus that's also part of those books I was referencing. And Ecclesiasticus uh, chapter 50, verses 25 and 6, uh, there's, there's this saying. And this saying is attributed to the lips of God himself. Two nations my soul detests, and the third is not even a people. Those who live on the mountain of Samaria, the Philistines, and that foolish people that live live in Shechem. And Shechem is another city in Samaria. So this is supposed to be a holy prophetic book. And in it, God himself is saying, I can't stand the Samaritans. So, So you can see now they've got religious literature that will confirm their prejudice bias. So it just reinforces and drives it different. It's one thing to have an idea and know that it's yours, but not God's. It's a whole nother level of devotion if you feel that God is endorsing the the bad idea that you have. And so so we have this literature that speaks of this hatred, but it wasn't just one way, also on the other side. There's a famous rabbi named uh, 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 Johanan. 
And it's and, and the story is told that he was passing through Samaria on his way to Jerusalem to pray. He passed by Mount Gerizim, and a Samaritan saw him and asked, Where are you going? He replied, I'm going to Jerusalem, he said, to pray. The Samaritan answered, Would it not be better for you to pray in this holy mountain, Mount Gerizim, rather than in that accursed house? So at one point, the Samaritans were victims of those prejudiced ideologies. But as happens when victims get power, if they're not following Jesus, they just reciprocate in the same spirit. So they, they're not just a people who are victims of hatred. They are perpetuate, perpetuators of that same hatred in return. So you can see how this history has created this scenario. And honestly, if you read the first five books of the Bible, it kind of seems reasonable why Israel took the posture toward the Samaritans that they did. Because the Samaritans are doing all the things that the first five books of the Bible tell them that they ought not do. And yet here's Jesus, a Jew, the Jew of Jews, setting aside those assumptions and engaging in a real conversation. So, they, had, they were the wrong ethnicity. They had the wrong sexual ethics. They had the wrong holy place. They had the wrong religion. And yet there's one more barrier that he's breaking through. And that would be the gender boundary that would have been in place. Reminds us of Galatians 3, 28 and 29 as we hear about the new kingdom of Christ and what Christ is building among humanity. And Paul says there, there is no Jew or Greek. Slave or free, male and female. Since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Now that verse is very important because I know that some of us uh, who haven't had the privilege of being nerds about Bible history um, and because of our sensitivity to language in, in the times in which we live, and particularly into gender-inclusive language, which I appreciate. I mean, I've raised three daughters, so I know that I've got uh, an inclination in that direction because I want a fair world and just world for my daughters. But, and so all the masculine language can be offensive. But when he says this, you are all Abraham's seed, there's neither fellow or me male or female, you have to understand that the mindset would have been it was the son that was the heir. And so you'll see a lot of reference to the sons of God in reference to the whole of Israel. What he is saying is, even if you're female, you're a son of God. Even if you're a female and a slave and a Greek, you are Abraham's seed. Do you see how radical this idea is? You are brought into the fold. Paul understands this, and Jesus is embodying it here in this narrative. Now, I do not want you to think ill of me. I purposely knew at this point might be the end of the sermon. So I want to save the rest of the material for another sermon, but it's not because I'm hungry. 
It's because I think the history lesson, we've all traveled as far as we need to travel this morning. So I just want to pause and step back, and I want you to think about that intense hatred and the way Jesus postures himself. And although there's lots of implication, application we could make from that, what I want to focus on is what it means for us to reflect the posture of Jesus. So as we get ready to close, go ahead and skip the next section and just go down to the call to action. And I'll tell you, I'll be honest with you, a lot of the times in my excitement in my study, by the time I get to this part in the sermon preparation, the call to action, bam, it is right there. This week was not like that. Uh, in fact, I had to close the books, and I had, and, and I always send a copy of the sermon to David and Jamie because it influences what they're doing. I had to send them a partially prepared sermon this week, and I just said, I don't really know how this is going to wrap up at end. And it wasn't until I think Friday, no, yesterday, <laughs> it wasn't until Saturday morning when I got up in the quiet and began to pray that I felt the Holy Spirit nudging me. And so this is what pastorally I want to submit to you to consider. If your life is not characterized by joy, peace, and abundance, have the courage to go on an inner journey and find out why. Because here is Jesus, worn out and tired, and yet... It doesn't hinder the essence of his humanity and his compassion and the patience that it takes to break down barriers. He's fully present with this woman. And it's because abundance was the heartbeat of who he was. And it's easy for us to fake abundance with religious zeal while we are drying up and on the edge of spiritual burnout on the inside. So, I'm not condemning you if you're not characterized by joy and peace and abundance, but I am saying we have to learn to understand that something is wrong if we're not. Maybe wrong is not even the right word. Something is off. There is an alignment, an adjustment that needs to take place. So if your life is not characterized by joy, peace, and abundance, go on an inner journey and find out why. Begin to prioritize your spiritual health so that you can be a healthy soul through which Jesus continues his work on earth. You know, this idea that, you know, uh, Jesus doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. I get it, but like everything else, it's become a really sloppy thing to say. Because it almost intimates that Jesus doesn't use people that he's first prepared for the work they're called to do. And God is more kind to you and to the people you're going to be interacting with to do that. And and the reason why I say that is this. You might have all your theological ducks in a row. You may have all the proper beliefs. But if you've never taken time to address the deep wounds of your childhood... You are going to harm people that you minister to. You may not even know it, but you will continue to perpetuate really unhealthy assumptions. And so it's really not enough to just believe. 
You have to believe in such a way that you open yourself up to the experience of the Spirit going down deep and bringing healing to the wounded places in your soul. Because when he brings the wounded places to your soul, not only will you be qualified and equipped for ministry, but you will have a power in ministry that you didn't have when you weren't living from that awareness. Because the, because Paul reminds us that we comfort others with the grace with which we've been comforted. Getting healed is more important than reading a hundred books. Because it is that process of brokenness and healing that will empower you to be an effective minister of Jesus. But if we don't, we'll harm people. It's not okay to be spiritually mature and emotionally immature. And even though we believe in grace and God accepts you as you are, you won't ever hear us saying that without the reality that God doesn't leave you there. Sometimes we've got to do some work and grow up and get healed so that we can be safe people through which Christ ministers. So, prioritize your spiritual health. And one of the ways you can do this is always be on an adventure in exploring some spiritual practice and living in an awareness of how the practice is improving your quality of life. Some spiritual practice, as I've said before, one of the dreams of my heart is that we would be a church that isn't simply known or even primarily known by what we believe. I would love for us to be a church that is known for what we do and who we are. I would love it if we worked together to create a cultural shift where it would not be uncommon to bump into a regular participant of Christ Community Church and say, tell me about what spiritual practice you're engaged in. How is it making your life better? How is it actually improving your, care, your quality of life? And then hear and learn. And then maybe that question's asked of me and I actually have an answer for it too. Practices result in character Character results in identity. Identity results in a destiny. So pay attention to your practices. Those are not just habits. They are what put you on a healthy path or an unhealthy path. Prioritize your practices so that when the moment of performance come, even though you're tired and weary and you're worn out, you will look at someone who your morality and your religion and your race has told you to despise and you'll just love them. To the point that you'll submit your neediness to them so that they can help you.